And so we're going to be, as I mentioned, in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We'll do a, a brief, uh, brief introduction to what we're going to be studying this morning. Um, I haven't been in 1 Peter in a while. And I have to tell you, as I started to read it and look into it, uh, I was just amazed. This, this book is, um, is incredible. It's intense. There's so much in it. And uh, I had originally planned to cover a chapter a week. And then I started studying it, and I'm like, oh, that ain't going to happen. And so I ambitiously attempted to cover half of the chapter, which that's not going to happen either, probably. So I'm going to do my best. But quite honestly, if you just read the first three verses, you go, whoa, we could spend all four weeks on the first three verses. There is so much in there. Uh, and and uh, uh, it's, just, it's just amazing all the things that are brought up just in the first several verses Um, Peter speaks to the church about salvation in Christ. He covers an array of spiritual truths, key pivotal doctrinal issues, uh, defining circumstances of eternal salvation itself. And so I'm going to give you a list of a few of the topics that are covered here. He talks about how we're saved from sin. He talks about our identity and our worldview as Christians here on earth. He talks about predestination. There's a topic of discussion. Uh, Grace, sanctification, the Trinity, References Old Testament prophecies and the fulfilling of Old Covenant by the New Covenant Jesus Christ established, and that's just in the first couple of verses. So there's plenty to talk about here. Uh, so like I said, I, I started out a little overly ambitious, but we're going to see how far we get. But it's kind of, it's kind of funny. You know, what it made me really think of is uh, it's a small book. It's not, I mean, relatively speaking, this isn't like Psalms where it has over 150 verses or, uh, yeah, 150 verses or something like that. This is, this is, um, a relatively small book, um, but there is so much in it. And as you open it up, it just gets bigger and bigger. And it made me think of Mary Poppins, quite honestly. Have you seen that movie? You know when she goes up to her bedroom and she has a little handbag thing? And then she pulls out absurdly large objects out of that handbag that should not fit in that handbag? She pulls out a giant mirror and a coat rack and a lamp. That's how I felt when I started reading just the first couple of verses. I'm like, whoa, what is all this? How did this fit in here? There's so much. And so I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, first, to give you a little bit of context, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, what is that? What is that big crazy word? Hermeneutics is uh, essentially the proper uh, study of language and its meaning. And in this case, specifically, the proper steps for studying God's word and understanding its meaning. And so we're going to in an attempt to study this, we want to make sure we're reading it and understanding it accurately. And we're told, even in Second uh, Peter, Peter's second letter, in uh, chapter 120, he reminds us that the word of God is of no private interpretation. Uh, the prophecy of God is of no private interpretation. What does that mean? Well, it means I don't get to make up my own version of what it means. It means that there's one way to understand what God meant to say. And yes, he speaks to us individually. He speaks to us on our level and where we need to be met. But we don't get to just take it and make it mean what we want it to mean. We don't get to make up our own truths. It has one meaning. And so our goal is to find out what God intended to say to us, what his scripture says and what it means. So context is very critical for that. First of all, who's the author? Who wrote the letter and who is it written to? Well, it's pretty clear if you read the book that Peter identifies himself as the author. Peter, the apostle, he is uh, the one that walked with Christ. He learned and listened at his feet. Uh, he watched and witnessed Jesus' miracles for three years. So this is the same Peter that denied him. 
This is the same Peter that walked on water with Jesus. This is the same Peter that bears witness to his death and resurrection and was restored by Jesus when Jesus rose from the dead and came to him and commissioned him to feed his sheep. This is that Peter. And if you read about Peter in the Gospels, you know he's a pretty passionate guy, isn't he? He's, he's not a sort of a half-hearted fellow. He was the one, who, his only disciple who stepped out on the water and, said, and wanted to walk on the water with Jesus. And when the guards came to take Jesus away, he's the one that drew the sword and cut off a servant's ear. He was always the one jumping out. He's the one who put himself in temptation he couldn't handle in a situation that he thought he was strong enough for, and he failed and denied Christ three times. But he's passionate, and, and he's all out. And that explains why this book is so intense and why he paid attention. Every word he put in there was for a reason. But that's the author. That's who we're getting instruction from. Someone who spent time with Jesus for three years. Someone who was passionate about who Christ was and had absolutely no doubt uh, that, that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one. He had no doubt as to why Jesus came and who he was. So who's the audience? Well, we're going to get that from the first few verses. The audience uh, is a little unique in some of the re- recent books we've studied. You know, we have Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, all, Timothy. These various books, are, which are actually just letters that we're now calling books, but they're letters from the early church founders and apostles. These were written to a specific audience, to a certain people group or a certain person even, uh, or a certain uh, region. And here in this letter, it starts off by basically addressing it not necessarily to just one person or one people group, but the church at large. Really, he lists off some cities and areas all in Asia Minor, and we're going to read through that. But this is meant to be a general instruction in doctrine and theology and in Christian living. And we're going to get into some of the details of that. But he really wanted to establish a lot of key things to the church at that time, to the church at large, not just the church in Corinth or just Timothy or Titus or Philemon, but to the church at large. That's what this letter was. This letter was intended to be circulated and passed around and, and encouraged and used as a tool of encouragement and a, and a tool to, to set a doctrinal foundation uh, of truth. And so that's why it was written and that's who it was written to. It was written approximately, it's estimated about 60 to 66 AD. That would put it about 30 years, 30, 35 years after Jesus rose from the dead. And it's pretty accurate in that estimation. We know that Peter was uh, martyred under Nero, which was around 70, uh, 70 to 73 AD, sometime in that time frame. So it obviously had to be written before he was martyred. He also references other books that we have in Scripture, other letters that were written. And we have pretty good confidence in when some of those letters were written. So we know it was written after, and it gives us a pretty clear window of time frame. So this was written about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So let's go ahead and get into it. Let's read the scripture together and, and see if we can get through as far as we can. This morning we also are going to share communion together. I'm looking forward to that. First Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as pilgrims or aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are the chosen, the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open up our understanding to your word. Lord, help us to know what you intend to speak to each person here individually as well as have a clear understanding what your word is intending to say very clearly and singularly. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the salvation we have in you. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion or those who are scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so if you look at a map, you see these, these uh, cities and regions are basically scattered all throughout uh, the northern Mediterranean area, the Mediterranean Sea, Black Sea. Uh, he's basically referencing uh, all the churches that have been planted on the various missionary journeys throughout that northern area. Um, and so it's interesting he leaves out Jerusalem and some of the hometown places, but he's referencing basically all of those places where emerging churches are growing in that entire area. And that's who it's written to. But Peter starts off, notice, with his, his title, with his identity. He calls himself an apostle. Well, I think it's important we know, well, what is an apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? Uh, is anyone an apostle? Well, the word itself literally means one who is sent, a messenger, specifically a messenger of the gospel, obviously, or an ambassador. This title, though, was specifically reserved for those who had personally been with Jesus. And so the term apostle was different than that of just a disciple or a, a term commonly used throughout church history, a saint. An apostle was someone who has directly and personally uh, experienced time with Jesus and was commissioned by Jesus. And Jesus chose his 12 apostles originally. And then in Acts we see that they replaced Judas Iscariot as they prayed over a successor so that there would be the 12 again. And that's when they chose another 12 person. But they had criteria very clearly listed out there in Acts chapter 1, 15 through 26. Peter discusses the qualifications of what would make an apostle. And it says that someone who is an eyewitness to Jesus' baptism, when the Heavenly Father validated Jesus' person and work, he needed to have heard of Jesus' life-changing, heard Jesus' life-changing teachings himself, uh, been present uh, to see his healings and other miracles. He needed to have witnessed uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and seen him walk and talk and eat. Uh, after the resurrection, he basically needed to witness these events. He needed to be an eyewitness account. So that when he shared the gospel message, he said, I saw it. I was there. I witnessed these things. These are, this is what I saw. Not this is what I heard. This is what I saw. That was what an apostle was. And, Jesus, and Peter starts out by saying, I'm an apostle. I was one of those guys. I was one of the incredibly blessed unworthy people chosen uh, to follow Christ while he was here on earth and to pass on this amazing message of the gospel. That's who I am. To the pilgrims, and I'm reading in the New King James Version, it says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion or those who are scattered. Pilgrims. You know, uh, the word pilgrim there is an alien or a resident foreigner. It's also translated in some uh, translations as stranger. This uh, is something that's very easy to skip over, but I think Peter alludes to something very critical here. He alludes to a very important fact by calling them pilgrims, by calling them strangers or aliens in their, in their hometown. 
he's referencing where their true citizenship status is. He's referencing their true identity. He's, he's really helping them, he's bringing their mind and their attention on the fact that they're not residents of earth. We've all seen that t-shirt, right, in OTW? What does it stand for? Not of this world. That's where this comes from. It comes from verses like this. It comes from Jesus himself when he said in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And we as his disciples, our kingdom isn't here either. When we receive Christ, when we receive salvation, the promise of eternal life, we get a new citizenship status. We get to be residents of heaven, residents of eternity. And as such, there's certain, certain evidences that should appear in our lives. And that's, I think, what Peter is trying to get at here by calling them by this title. He's trying to remind them who they are and therefore who they should be and act like. Um, we need to recognize the implications of this. We're visitors. We're guests on this world. And there's a practical effect into how we think and live. Romans 12.2 is the verse we're familiar with. Uh, if you've uh, grown up in the church or been taught for a while, I'm sure you've heard these verses. It says, and Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? And so we're not supposed to look just like the world. We had actually, we are supposed to be the oddball. It's okay if we don't fit in. We're not supposed to. And sometimes we get frustrated with that. We get frustrated if we're treated differently. If we actually stand on our faith in these days, it's starting to cost you something. You, you cannot truly stand on the truth of God's word and be a little counterculture, can you? You've got to go against the flow. And it's really becoming more and more real. It's becoming more and more tangible and practical. And I believe that it's times like this when the culture and society is, is becoming more and more clearly contrary to God, more and more clearly contrary to His truth, it's going to sift the wheat from the chaff, isn't it? It's going to sift out those who are not truly Christians because it costs you something from those who truly are followers of Christ. I know when I went on missionary trips and visited uh, China in particular, there's areas of China that are very heavily persecuted. And I know you've heard that. Well, I can tell you there's no such thing as a nominal Christian in China. There is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. Which, you know, I don't really like that term, come to think of it. How about room temperature? Is that okay? Can I say room temperature? Uh, there's no such thing as a room temperature Christian in China. <laughs> because it costs you something. The Christians I met, most of them, especially those who served in, in the church, in the underground church there, they had no job because they could not get a job. Because if you're a Christian, you can't get a job unless you, unless you deny your faith. Uh, you, don't, you, you don't get hired. It costs you something. If you are caught teaching children under 18 about Christ, you go to jail. You disappear. It costs you something. And so, that being the case, there's no, <laughs> you can't be on the fence. Either you're sold out and you're following Christ or not. Because it costs too much. And so, as, as citizens of heaven and as, as, as people living in a foreign country as we are now, uh, we have to realize that it, that it may cost us something and we, that there is going to come a point where we're not going to fit in and we have to recognize that and accept that. We are pilgrims. You know, as, as an American citizen, we enjoy certain privileges and protection even outside this country, don't we? You know, as an American... Because of the country we identify ourselves with, that, that renders some protection in, in many countries, doesn't it? Sometimes it makes you a target, but 
in many places it actually is is a very good thing because an American citizen people don't want to mess with America and you mess with an American citizen you mess with America and most countries aren't willing to take that risk and so it comes with certain protection it also comes with certain reputation but um, you know as Christians as citizens of heaven we enjoy the protection and benefits of that too don't we we have the promise of eternal life we have the privilege of a relationship with the almighty God that we take with us. We have something that no one on this earth can take from us. We have something that no one can touch. We, that's, that's pretty powerful. And that citizenship is something that can never be revoked. Um, you know, in traveling to other countries and, I, and, and in learning that Americans have a reputation, usually it's... Uh, when I went to South America, it was the noisy Americans. Here come the noisy Americans. We we're always the noisy ones, at least so we were told. But... We had to realize when we were in missionary training, we would study the culture that we were about to enter so that we could be effective missionaries, so we could be effective pilgrims in that country. We had to study their culture. We had to understand the way they thought and how it was different from the way we thought. And we had to understand that we were, first of all, representing Christ. So what kind of representation did we want to be? And we can't just go in there on our terms. We had to be aware. We had to be understanding. But also we represented our country and there are certain consequences as well for uh, misbehaving in other countries. And so we had to realize the representation that we brought with us wherever we went. We could not deny it. We couldn't get away from it. It just was. We are Christians. We are Americans. And people are going to be watching and they're going to form their opinion about a Christian and an American based on how we act, how we talk, how we treat them, how we treat each other. It's the same way. We're the church. We're visitors on this planet. And people are watching, aren't they? They're looking to see how do we treat each other? How do we deal with people outside the church? How, what's our work ethic? What's our integrity? Why would they want to be a Christian anyway? That's what they're watching. And you know what? If we call ourselves Christians, you cannot get away from that. People will always be watching and they'll always be making a judgment on what a Christian is who, and what a Christian does, and why even be one, by watching you. Are you aware of that? Are you, are you, is that? Is that having a practical effect in your life? And that's what Peter, I think, is getting at here. You know, if we went down to Mexico, let's say we all up and decided we're going to go live in Mexico for three months. We're going to live down there among the people. We're going we're gonna, to... Uh, do some church planning or do some work down there, but it's limited. We're only going to be there for three months. We're not moving there forever. How would our plans differ if we were planning to live there forever? If you're going to move to Mexico and just you know going to live there forever, would you have different plans than if you're living there for three months? Would the things you buy, the way you lived, uh, how you worked with people, would all of that be affected by that very fact? It would. And we're not here permanently. This isn't our home. Should that affect? the things we buy and how we live and what we do. It should. Do we have that heavenly mindset? How do we spend our resources, our time, our money? And that doesn't mean we only do everything in ministry and we only do everything that directly brings someone to Christ. Not necessarily. We have practical needs here on this earth. It's okay to eat. <laughs> it's okay to drink water, buy groceries. and There's more, obviously. But, yes, there's practical realities to living on planet earth. But... You know, are we, are we looking to use those resources to further God's kingdom in our job, in our workplace, and whatever we're doing? It does affect 
how we think and in what we do if we realize we're here temporarily. Peter, just a bit later in this very letter, he revisits this title and expounds on its implications. He says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain, excuse me, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So in other words, he's reminding them again, just a little bit later, listen, your pilgrims, your sojourners, here's how you should act. Here's what should be the result of your conduct. When people examine you, when people falsely accuse you, that they would be left with nothing but to glorify God and how your life is a testimony to who he really is. So he's appealing to them as pilgrims, as sojourners. You know, that all that lasts and is worthwhile and is of eternal reward, all that truly is satisfying is that which is done for the heavenly kingdom. And you know, uh, yesterday at men's breakfast, I was, I was reminded of this theme uh, in reading through Ecclesiastes. Have you read through Ecclesiastes, anybody? It can be pretty depressing, huh? <laughs> it's like, nothing is worth anything. Wow. It's like, everything is a waste is basically the message of that book, it seems like sometimes. But, you know, uh, the end of the book, he concludes with uh, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. He says, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. This is Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. He had everything material that you can imagine and more. And his conclusion of everything was, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That was his whole conclusion. You know what? Finally, I'm just going to just rest in this. Fear God, keep his commandments. Because that is something that has eternal impact, doesn't it? That is something that won't fade away, that won't get old, that, won't, that will truly satisfy when you live a life like that. Obviously, again, that doesn't mean you won't find yourself needing to do things purely of earthly concern. Uh, obviously, we live here. And, but we need to live with a mindset that finds our peace and in our hope and not in things of this world. So it's not about never owning a house or a car or never doing anything that's purely of, of earthly substance. But where's your hope? Where is your peace found? When those things are taken away, when they do lose their luster, when they're no longer exciting or they break or whatever it is, they burn down, um, are you shaken? It, it was, it, does your hope crumble? Does your peace crumble when those things are moved and changed? Or is your hope and peace found in Christ? And that's really what's, what it's about is your mindset and where your heart is at. It doesn't mean you never ever do anything that just simply has earthly substance. Obviously, that's not the case here. I read a quote from Oswald Chambers a while back that really said it well. He said, It's not what a man or woman does as an occupation that determines if their work is secular or sacred, but how they do it and more importantly, why they do it. So whether you're a bus driver, a teacher, an insurance salesman, a banker, uh, you work at a camp, you know, whatever you do, it isn't what you do that, that determines whether you're in ministry or not. You know, I've seen people in ministry do it in a very secular way, quite honestly, in a way that isn't spiritually minded, that doesn't glorify God, that isn't really of eternal value. And I've seen people who are janitors and plumbers and carpenters they glorify God and are absolutely in ministry in everything they do and say. 
People are blessed everywhere they go. They're constantly praying with somebody. People are coming to the Lord. And they're just doing their job. But they're doing it as a Christian. They're doing it as a pilgrim. They're recognizing who they are and what they are. And that's the difference. It isn't necessarily what you do, barring the obvious occupations that are contrary to God's word. There's some of those. Barring those, it's not what you do, but how you do it and why you do it that determines whether your work is of, is of God and of eternal value or not. So, moving on, speaking to these pilgrims, these sojourners, it says those who are scattered, those who are of the dispersion throughout Asia Minor. So again, he's reaching out to this whole church in that whole area. And this is really encouraging, actually. This is really exciting because here we are 30 years after Christ rose from the dead. And he's writing to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, all of Asia Minor, Bithynia. This whole area, there's churches everywhere growing and budding and God's word is, is getting out there. People are being saved and, and added to the number. And this is just 30 years after Christ rose from the dead. And most of the known world has churches in it at that time. That's pretty cool. That's pretty exciting. From 12 guys, that is what God did. 30 years after, he's writing now to churches all over. Thousands of people following Christ. Thousands of disciples because of what God is doing through them. He says in verse 2, The elect, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So, hold on a second. There's a lot in there. <laughs> There's a whole lot in there. But did you notice one clear doctrinal truth that he referenced? The Trinity. He speaks to God, of God the Father, the Spirit, and of the Son. All right there. He, he, again, there's, again, there's so many things overlapping in this, but I thought that was really cool how he just fit that in there. He didn't just talk about God the Father, he talked about all three, making it clear the Trinity, that, that the Trinity is true, that, that God is three in one. There is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, and there is only one God. And he speaks of their work, each of them having their, sort of their place in the plan of salvation. He talks about how uh, God the Father, the architect of the plan and the Spirit is what uh, is that aspect of God that works directly in our lives in the process of sanctification and Jesus Christ being the one who paid the price. And so he talks about each of their, each of their um, roles in the plan of salvation for us. Why God loved us so much, I don't know. But it's pretty awesome how they all got involved, how he got involved. And this is one God, three in one, the Trinity Again, those who would doubt it, it is clear throughout Scripture, and Peter leaves no doubt here, uh, the fact of the Trinity. But Peter has now called his audience, the church, by two titles. First, he called them what? Pilgrims, right? Second, he called them the elect. The elect. So what is meant by the elect? And according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Well, let's, let's look at that. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So there's two... Opposing views here. This gets into the idea of predestination. How many have heard of predestination? Have a good idea of what that means and the implications of that. <clears throat> Basically, the church has wrestled over the idea of predestination, God's sovereignty versus man's will, and what is God's part in the process of salvation versus ours, and it seems to conflict. And we have the Calvinists, right? We have those who believe very strongly 
that strictly really God's sovereignty is what's at work here. And we see it in verses like this. We see it in Romans 8 where it talks about people who are predestined. And that word predestined is really one of the main ones that trips us up because it basically seems to indicate clearly that God chose those who would be saved. So we've got this room of people here and he said, okay, I'm going to save you and you. Uh, not you. I'm going to save you. Okay, I'll save you. And not you. And you. And that's what God did. He, he, he established it ahead of time. And there's nothing you can do, nothing I can do to change that. If I'm chosen, awesome. He's going to call me, save me at one point or another. And it's not really up to me. If I'm not, I'm not. And, I'm, and, and there's nothing that can be done about that either. And that's the Calvinist view. Is it, it takes that to the ultimate extreme conclusion of predestination and God's sovereignty is that he simply chose, set up the plan, and kind of went through this charade of all of these things as if we had a choice. But really we don't. There's just simply the chosen, the elect. So is that what Peter's talking about? That's the question we have to answer. But then there's also the other view the Armenian view, and these names, by the way, come from people who really pioneered these concepts and made them very pronounced and well-known in the church. Um, but the Armenian view takes kind of the opposite and takes hold of those verses, those verses throughout Scripture that talk about how we have the ability to choose, how we do choose salvation, how we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, how uh, faith without works is dead. So in other words, if you're not working, you're not saved. And it basically takes the complete opposite point of view of, well... Salvation is up to me, really. I've got to accept it. I've got to work it out. If I blow it, I lose it. It's shaky. It's scary. It's pretty darn scary. Uh, whether I have it today, whether I happen to die at the wrong time and go to heaven, it's, you know, it's, it's up and down. Uh, but that's the Armenian view. Is they take the opposite extreme. And they take verses in Scripture that seem to clearly indicate that it's really resting on us. And they hang on to that. But yet we see verses like John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to the chosen predetermined few. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> it is the power of God to salvation for Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. That means that, I'm pretty sure that means everyone. That means it's available to all. So, what is the problem here? What is happening? How did these opposing views come about? Why do we have people so passionately holding to one camp or the other? Well, I think it comes from two main fallacies. First of all, they fail to take into account all of Scripture. They fail to look at the whole context and counsel of God's word. Instead, they isolate a verse or, or even a part of a verse or a sentence and they go, this is what it's saying. And they get so focused on that that it warps their view of God and his plan. And so we have to take warning at that and go, okay, am I really looking at the whole of scripture? Am I taking it all into account and really understanding what God is meaning here? But I think the second one is even more important. The second reason why I think a lot of people end up in these camps is because of the great desire of man to understand the mind of God and desire to fill all these information gaps uh, that we can't comprehend and don't have. And at the end of the day, there's places in Scripture, there's truths taught in Scripture that I don't understand, that you don't understand. We're not given those answers 
And we've got to be okay with that. And at some point, we've got to humble ourselves and realize we're not God. And we're not going to understand everything. Are you okay with that? You know, but our desire to know everything, comprehend everything, connect all the dots and get a nice, neat bow on it so it's all wrapped up and figured out, that desire is pretty strong sometimes. We want to just have it concluded. We want to figure it out and be done with it. But you know what? God doesn't give us all the answers. You're just going to have to be okay with that. You're going to have to give up on that desire. But because of that desire and because of a lack of proper hermeneutics, like we talked about, it's very easy to come to those false conclusions. We have, don't we have quite a few extreme doctrinal weird cults all over the place? I mean, there's hundreds of them. People who have te- taken their little pet doctrine and just removed it from Scripture and, and said, okay, we're going to just focus on this, and it's become this crazy weird thing. It's, the Word of God is a sword. It's dangerous. Don't misuse it. It's meant to be used by a skilled person. It's meant to be wielded by someone who's been trained Properly, someone who has trained themselves, someone who's been a Berean and studied. It's not to be taken lightly. You don't just pull a verse out and run with it. Understand how God's word is meant to be meant to be used and studied. Proverbs eighteen thirteen gives us a good warning about that. He says, "He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him." And to take a verse and then just run with it without doing the proper studying and understanding what the context is and what is being said here, what God's entirety of Scripture says, that's folly, it's foolishness. It's shameful. And if you lead others astray, there's some real judgment that goes with that too. And Jesus spoke about that. And so I caution you, understand the power of God to change a life through His Word, but don't take it lightly. Understand how to use it and to uh, study it properly because you end up with these extreme views that I think Scripture is very clear on. And we're going to pick it apart a little further here because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I I don't want you to just take what I'm saying and say, okay, so this must be how it is. It's sort of this in-between thing. We're going to look at Scripture a little bit here and we're going to come to a conclusion together about foreknowledge, about predestination. And what does Scripture say if we take in the whole counsel of God? What is being said here? The word foreknowledge can also be translated for thought, uh, this word here. But let's get some context and perspective on this. We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things, correct? He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows what we're going to do tomorrow. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. He knows what I'm going to do in ten minutes. He knows what I'm going to say. I don't even know what I'm going to say. But it's, it's going to come. And, and he knows if I'm going to screw something up, I'm going to forget something. I don't know those things. But he knows those things. And yet, in some manner, in knowing those things, we're going to see what he does with that knowledge. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of, his darkness, out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In reading those verses, we get a bit of a clue there. He says, these people who were once not, his people now are. These people who once did not have mercy, now have mercy. That doesn't sound much to me like people who were set from the beginning of time as his chosen elect. It kind of sounds to me like the gift was made available, they chose it, and now they're adopted into the family. Now they're the chosen. Now they're the elect. Now they're the the chosen holy nation, the special people. Now they've received mercy. They hadn't been assigned it from the beginning of time. It doesn't seem to indicate. 
But there's more. If we go to Romans 8, there's a lot to be said here. If you want to turn with me to Romans 8, 28. He, this is some of the more controversial scripture. But again, I think if we read through it as it's meant to be read, we get a, very more, a, very more, a much more accurate picture of what's being said here and what God's plan for salvation is. It says, And we know all, that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, so those He knew ahead of time would cho- choose Him, those who He knew would respond to the gift of salvation and be saved and receive mercy. He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That is, that Jesus might be the firstborn. We'll stop there for a second. A careful look at this verse seems to indicate something about predestination. It says, what does he say here about predestination? Did he predestine his people to salvation? Well, according to this verse, and according to the way the original language reads, it says, he predestined them, those who he foreknew, who would be his chosen people, He's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, that's sanctification. That's cleansing. That's, that's, that's growing in Christ. That's not salvation that he's talking about there. He had a plan for those who he knew would follow him and chose him. To use them, to sanctify them, to build them up and grow them. It doesn't sound to me, if we read it carefully, like he put someone in a category as a Christian, as those who are saved and said it from the beginning of time. Again, careful reading of all of Scripture, it becomes more and more clear. He predestined those who he foreknew would accept salvation and love him and called them according to his purpose to be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore has risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now to look at the Armenian view, that doesn't sound much like salvation is dependent on me, does it? It doesn't sound much like I am entirely responsible for gaining and keeping my salvation and I could lose it so easily. It says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. He is holding us. We're not just holding on to Him. He is holding us. And He made that call, I think it's clear, to everyone because we have so much of Scripture that clearly says that He is called, salvation is available to the world, to all. It's a free gift. We see it throughout Romans that it talks about how all have sinned. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. We're given very clear instructions, the very simple and small part that we play in this whole salvation thing. It's a very simple, very small part. Yes, we do play a part, but it's not dependent on us. And so I think if we read all of this, we get a pretty good idea. 
And so in studying, and we don't have time to go over so many other scriptures that talk about this this morning, but I am confident that salvation is indeed available to all. Furthermore, that we, while we must respond and accept the free gift of salvation, and yes, there must be practical evidence in our lives that we are a child of God, salvation is not dependent on your ability or on my ability to live up to a standard. It is completely secure and utterly dependent on the power of God through the perfect and complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross when he died and rose again and now prepares a place for us in heaven to rejoice with him in perfect existence for all eternity. That's salvation. That's amazing. That's good news. That's something we're sharing and getting excited about. And we're out of time. See, we got through a couple of verses. We got through a couple of verses. You know what? We're going to stop there for now. I did have quite a bit more to talk about, but there will be a part two. What I want to encourage you guys in right now, because we're going to take communion this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we do that, I really want to speak to to those of you who um, maybe have not received Christ yet. I want to give people an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity for the Spirit. If, he's, if the Spirit is speaking to you, if working, He's working in your life, you need to respond. This gift of salvation is available to all. And you know, not only salvation, but some of you may have wandered. Maybe your walk isn't with the Lord anymore. Maybe you've wandered far. Um, and it's time to come back. God's speaking to you this morning. You know, and I don't know if it's one of you or five of you. I know most of you in here. And I know most of you love God and are following Him. But God's Word is clear in this. And far be it from me if I don't give you a chance to respond to what the Spirit is telling you. To step up and to receive this gift of salvation today can be that day for you. And maybe if you're among those who have fallen from the Lord, you've wandered far and you're back here this morning hearing about God's love and His plan for your life and how good it is and it's time to return, I want to give you an opportunity to respond before we take communion. Because communion is for those who are the called. The communion is for the church of God. And if you're not part of that family yet, it's not for you. But the good news is you can be part of that family right now. You can have the eternal hope and peace that we have right now. And so we're going to pray. I'm going to give you that opportunity. The elders are going to pass out the elements of communion, the juice and the crackers. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. Um, So before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of salvation. And I thank you for what you did for us. And that it isn't dependent on us. Lord, I thank you that we do get get a choice. We do get to be part of your plan. And it is available to all. I thank you that Christ's death was sufficient. I thank you for the hope that we have and the peace that we have. And so, Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would speak to them, that you would build them up in you, that you would make clear the calling you have on their lives. And I pray that you would work among each person here. In Jesus' name, amen.